Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hello, rehab friends. Welcome to the Fabulous Five of ADL Training and Older Adults, Practical Strategies to Demonstrate Value and Improve Outcomes. I am Dr. Melinda Butler. I am an occupational therapist, a board-certified patient advocate, and an elder care consultant. But most importantly, I am a passionate lover of all things for and about productive aging in older adults. I believe that caring for the needs of the most vulnerable of our society is my duty and calling, and I am so grateful that you chose to spend the next hour with me. One of the challenges with ADL training is that it can be perceived as a custodial task, meaning it doesn't really require the licensed therapist to perform. It can be carried out by a non-licensed clinician. This is often the source of denials when it comes to ADL training that is administered by OTs or other health professionals. However, ADL training really does require skill, and I am convinced that we can demonstrate this both in our treatment interventions and in our documentation, And this will really help instill this understanding in the world of insurance and healthcare as we help to meet this critical need in our patients. So we're going to talk about how to do that in five topics. Topic one is five standardized ADL assessments. Topic two is five pitfalls of duplicating services and dividing the body. Topic three is five diagnostic-related groups and five treatment focuses of each. Topic four is five treatment techniques that not only demonstrate skill, but also add value. And topic number five is the five E's of discharge planning. And yes, this will definitely help to ease your patient's mind. And those are economics, education, environment, equipment, and empowerment. So let's dive right into topic number one, which is five fabulous standardized ADL assessments. If you're following along in the resource guide for this podcast, you'll see that I've included a link to each of these assessments that we'll be discussing. Um, I I retrieved these from sralab.org forward slash rehabilitation dash measures. SRA stands for Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. They are uh, formerly known as the Institute of of Rehabilitation in Chicago. There's also a YouTube link in the resource guide that has a video demonstrating or of a clinician demonstrating the administration of the CATS ADL Assessment of Independence, which is our first fabulous assessment that we're going to talk about. Um, The CATS Index of Independence in ADL, many of you have probably heard of this one. 
It was created by Sidney Katz. He was a pioneering physician, scientist, educator, author, and just all-around public servant. He helped to make several advances in geriatric care, including the United States Nursing Home Reform Act of 1987, which established basic rights for nursing home residents. But why I think the CATS Independence, or I'm sorry, the CATS Index of Independence in ADL is so fabulous is because it assesses the six basic ADL areas that we typically are, um, are working on with our patients. Eating, continence, transfers, toileting, dressing, and bathing. This assessment can be administered either by observation or interview, or of course, the best practice would be to incorporate both of those methods. And this is going to take maybe five or 10 minutes or so, not too long to administer. So that also makes it fabulous. And this assessment has really good test, retest, and inter-rater reliability. Our next fabulous assessment is the Modified Physical Performance Test. This one looks at ADL and non-vestibular balance. There are seven to nine performance areas, and it just really has a good multi-dimensional look at physical function. Everything from picking up an item off the floor, um, lifting an item from off of a shelf, uh, transfers, 360 degree turn. It also encompasses a 50 foot walk and then negotiating a flight of stairs as well as the progressive Romberg. So really good all around assessment. Next is the AMPAC, the activity measure for post-acute care. This one looks at ADL, cognition, functional mobility, and it is based on patient-reported outcomes in 15 different activity domains. The Barthel and the Modified Barthel ADL Index. This is also a performance measure of ADL, functional mobility, and gait. There are 10 areas of measure on the Barthel and the Modified Barthel, and Many of us have, are familiar with the Barthel, but maybe not quite as many are familiar with the modified Barthel. The primary difference between the two is the modified Barthel um, breaks those assessment or that assessment scoring rubric into a, a couple more categories to choose from. So this helps to minimize some of the subjectivity, which is one of the uh, one of the reported concerns with the Barthel as a limitation. So instead of, for example, a scoring criteria being a 0, a 5, or a 10, the modified Barthel may break that down more into 0, 3, 5, 8, and 10. So again, more options helps to minimize some of the subjectivity. Also, the modified Barthel not only gives us a score, but it provides an interpretation of that score, which goes as far as to recommend a treatment setting, or I'm sorry, a, um, a residential setting for that patient, whether that might be home or assisted living or a nursing home. And then last but not least is the Coleman Evaluation of Living Skills. This 
This is an observation and performance-based assessment. It looks at ADL, cognition, communication, life participation, and occupational performance. There are 17 different skills that are assessed, and the areas include self-care, safety, money management, health management, community integration, use of a phone, work, and leisure. So all of the ADLs that we typically like to uh, consider when it comes to occupational performance. And for those of you who may not know, this assessment was updated in 2016. So it's a little bit more modernized now and it can be administered by any health professional. And it, it also, um, there is also a digital version of this assessment too, I believe. So those are the five fabulous ADL assessments that I wanted to discuss. Um, again, make sure you look at that resource guide and click on those links so that you can read more about each of these of these assessments and also the relevant articles and studies that were done that show the, the reliability of these assessments and some of the other demographic information. Now let's move on to our next topic. Oh, before we do that, I do wanna add one more thing uh, when it comes to standardized assessments. A lot of times therapists ask me, well, are there any certain skills needed to administer these tests? Or I'm an OT, can I administer an assessment that has gait in it? Or, um, you know, or I'm a therapy or therapist assistant. Am I able to administer an assessment because I thought that assistants could not assess? So these are all very good questions. So I want to kind of debunk some of the myths as it pertains to administering standardized assessments. So unless your state practice act or licensure board indicates otherwise, or unless the assessment instructions indicate otherwise, Anyone who is competent in the administration of an assessment is able to administer that assessment. They are not discipline specific, again, unless otherwise stated, and um, assistants are also able to administer. I think we get caught up in that word assessment and because it is widely thought or kind of assumed that assistants don't assess, but you do. Uh, we all assess our patients. We assess them for treatment, whether they're able to participate in treatment. We assess them to know how to grade that treatment. So you absolutely assess. You just don't necessarily take that assessment information to compile a plan of a treatment plan. That would be up to the therapist. And the therapist can do that uh, by using some of the information, some or all of the information that has been retrieved or gathered by the assistant. But you definitely assess your patients, so don't think that you don't. <laughs> so I hope that clarifies a little bit about who can administer an assessment. We do wanna make sure we're not duplicating services, meaning PT, OT, and or speech are all kind of administering the same tests and addressing the same types of goals with those tests. And so that brings us to our next topic. 
topic number two, which is the five pitfalls of dividing the body and duplicating services. When we think about duplicating services, let's start at the beginning. This typically begins at the goal setting portion of creating that treatment plan. And so oftentimes having some simple basic rules uh, for disciplines to follow can avoid this from happening in the first place. So I'll explain that further in a moment. Um, when we think about the treatment interventions, we want to focus more on the why of the treatment as opposed to the what of the treatment because often the mud the waters are muddied sometimes an, an observer doesn't know if they're observing a PT or an OT or a speech therapy session depending on what you're doing because of course there can and will be some overlap in some of the things that we do with our patients um, but if we focus on the goals and the why of the treatment the why of what we're doing should always align directly with the goals. And if we think about it from this perspective, we can avoid duplicating services. And then we don't have to worry about <laughs> dividing the body, right? We have PT addressing the legs, OT addressing the upper body, uh, particularly the arms and hands, and then speech addresses the neck up and often what happens is we forget the core. Uh, we want to make sure we get our patients on their feet to on their feet to work on balance. And so that is going to definitely involve the whole body. And everything the patient does involves the whole body. So we want to stay away from this pitfall of the division based on body parts and think about each discipline treating the patient holistically, uh, but just making sure that we differentiate when we start with these goals. I think a great way to do this is to come up with some sort of rules or guidelines that you would follow within your treatment setting and just some best practice rules uh, for you to follow. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that this only applies if multiple disciplines are in at the same time with the same patient. If you are PT and you're the only discipline in, well, the sky's the limit. You can actually address any and everything that falls under the PT plan of care and, of course, that you are competent to, to do. Um, same goes with OT and with speech. So these kind of rules to avoid duplication of services, they only apply if multiple disciplines are in at the same time. So let's start first with some strategies for PT and OT. There is a, uh, a, a chart here in the resource guide that you can follow along with or reference later. We'll start with the first pitfall, which is with transfers. A great rule of thumb to avoid doing this is to make sure that OT writes goals for transfers that occur in the bathroom and PT writes goals for all other transfers. You might say, well, uh, I would like to address car transfers. I'm an OT. That's a functional transfer. So why can I not address that? Well, you can. <laughs> that, would, that would not be out of your scope of practice. However, if PT is involved at the same time and you don't want to have to have a huddle 
before you evaluate your patient every time to to decide who's going to do what. It's easier to just have some clear-cut rules that you know you're going to follow every time. That just makes it a lot easier so that we can kind of follow the same guidelines for every patient. Um, Doesn't mean that those other transfers are out of your scope of practice or that you won't ever perform any of those tasks, Uh, especially a transfer out of bed. Of course, OTs, if we're going to work on an ADL with a patient, we would need to get that patient out of bed if they happen to be in bed at the start of the session. Well, that brings me to my next point when we talk about mobility, and the same would apply for uh, transfers out of bed or wheelchair mobility. Um, Let's have OT address those areas as part of the ADL setup. Anything that you're doing to prepare the treatment area or the uh, patient in preparation for that ADL session, that can be billed as your setup time and your treatment setup is actually billable for all payer sources except for Medicare Part B. You cannot bill for your treatment setup on your Part Bs, but for your other payer sources, you absolutely can bill for your treatment setup time. So, OT, yes, you will still get the patient out of bed. You will still mobilize the patient in bed and and transfer to that wheelchair or to that chair. But the the for purposes of the note the that you're going to write, that encounter note, we're going to focus on those aspects as treatment setup, and then we'll really uh, take a deeper dive into the actual ADL uh, ADL. Uh, performance areas for which you will have set goals for and that way we're not dividing services or dividing duplicating services excuse me and you're still able to do what you need to do with the patient so that takes care of transfers and mobility um, except for gait training I do want to quickly address gait training oftentimes OTs will will avoid ambulating a patient because they are concerned about either A, duplicating services with PT, or B, tiring the patient out too much so that they cannot perform adequately with PT. And so I challenge you to to not worry about either of those things. First of all, ambulation and gait training are not the same. Gait training is a skilled service that PT Um, that PT definitely uh, performs on a daily basis with their patients, and it it does require skill. However, ambulation can be administered or, or performed by anyone. It does not require the skills of a licensed therapist to Uh, to ambulate a patient. A non-licensed caregiver can ambulate a patient. The skill comes into the specific gait training techniques and identifying the muscle groups that might be uh, deficient that we would need to strengthen in order to maximize outcomes with gait. So those are those uh, specific nuances with regard to gait training. Ambulation, OT, speech, you can definitely do and you should do it because we want to make sure that the patient has the activity tolerance needed to A, walk into the bathroom and then B, perform the toileting or whatever that ADL task is going to be once they get into the bathroom 
or into the kitchen or wherever they may need to go. So we want to make sure that we are addressing the, uh, the performance of the activities leading up to the actual ADL. No, we're not billing for gait training, but we might document that the patient that there are 50 feet from the patient's bed to the patient's bathroom, and they need to be able to ambulate that 50 feet to um, and maintain the energy and the endurance needed to perform the toileting or the functional task in the bathroom once they get there. So those things are important. And we do want to make sure that the patient is able to perform those tasks even when they are tired. And so if OT has finished their session and the patient has moved on to PT, we don't want to think about, well, the patient is now too tired for PT. Well, if they're too tired, you know, that is not a bad thing because in real life, there's going to be times where they feel too tired. Or maybe it's after dialysis and they're really tired. But guess what? Life continues to happen. So in the therapy world, everything is, is often very controlled. It's a very controlled environment. But real life won't be that way. And so we do want to make sure that some of their therapy sessions are conducted at times where the patient is tired. So that we know they may not have performed as well as they did the other day when they were fresh, but it shows what amount of energy, effort, endurance, activity tolerance is needed to get the patient to that next level so that they can perform even when they are tired. So that's just a good rule of thumb when it comes to transfers and mobility. Now let's talk really quickly about balance. You know, your patient is they can't get enough balance training. And so when PT and OT are both involved, I think it's important that you both address balance, but it should be a task specific type of balance training. PTs are going to address balance that occurs during gait and maybe stair climbing, um, transfers, etc., pivoting. And OT is going to address balance that occurs during any specific ADL or IADL task that might be reaching into a closet or a cabinet or a drawer that might be reaching down to the to their ankles to pull up their clothing um, after toileting or during dressing. It might be um, the balance needed to stand um, and and manage uh, peri care. Uh, reaching anterior and to anteriorly and posteriorly to address those tasks. So address balance, but address it for the specific ADL or IADL that is um, needed. And then strengthening. The same concept applies. Um, we want to focus on strengthening those specific muscle groups needed for the specific ADL or IADL task. And think about how much strength is really needed to do that. Um, I don't remember if I pointed out another handout in your resource guide, which actually shows muscle recruitment and balance needed for specific ADL. So make sure you reference that when you have a moment, and that can really help when we think about setting appropriate goals. Um, if the goal is for the patient to don a shirt, and the patient starts out with three out of five strength, which is full range of motion against gravity, 
Well, how much more strength do they really need to don that shirt? We want to be thinking critically about that. And if the goal is for the patient to push up from the toilet or the bedside commode or the shower chair or to slide over on the tub transfer bench, how much strength is needed for that? Um, And then we want to think about strengthening in terms of how much is needed for the task that the patient is going to perform. And then when we move on to safety awareness, um, this is automatically implied as as a part of all treatment. We don't teach things that are unsafe. um, So we don't always have to specifically target safety awareness. That's just going to be automatically a part of all of our treatment interventions. And the exception to that would be if the patient has a specific neurological um, deficit in the brain that resulted in a decreased ability to reason, problem solve, uh, judgment, those areas of performance that are deficient, if we think those can improve or if we think we can train a caregiver um, or adapt the environment to compensate for those deficits, then by all means, we can write a specific goal for that type of awareness, safety awareness. But when we're talking about just our general generalized weakness patients, those, uh, those friends of ours, uh, we don't always need a specific goal for that area. Now, let's move on to OT and speech. Some of the pitfalls occur with duplicating services here when it comes to adaptive equipment needed for feeding or just feeding skills in general. And if you kind of focus on a rule of thumb that OT would address the transfer of food from the table or from the plate to the mouth, and then speech would address the equipment or the skills needed for portion control to facilitate an effective swallow or for liquid and bolus manipulation uh, for swallowing, then that would be a great way to kind of divide and conquer when it comes to feeding skills or adaptive equipment needed for feeding. For cognition, OT and speech can both address cognition. I I do say uh, a good best practice would be to try to identify who's going to address the cognition and leave it to that one discipline. However, if both disciplines are involved and both are going to address cognition, you can maybe draw the line by having OT address cognition as it relates to ADL and IADL performance and speech address cognition as it relates to the attention, memory, problem solving, and executive function needed for communication skills. That might be a good way to divide and conquer when it comes to cognition. Strengthening. OT and speech both also address strength. If OT makes sure that the goals are geared towards strengthening for managing utensils needed for feeding, and speech would address goals related to oral, uh, pharyngeal, laryngeal areas of uh, strengthening to facilitate anterior to posterior transfer of food and liquid. That would be a great way to divide and conquer when it comes to strengthening for OT and speech. And then again, (laughs) safety awareness, same applies as what I mentioned when we discussed PT and OT, 
the same rule of thumb would apply here as well. All right, we are just about at the halfway point already. Let's move on to topic number three, which is five diagnostic related groups and five fabulous treatment focuses of each. The goal here is to ensure that ADL goals and treatment interventions are specific to the patient's deficits. And we wanna make sure that those are related to these diagnostic related groups. And in the new world of reimbursement, where we have PDPM for, for skilled nursing facilities, patient-driven payment model, and PDGM for our home health friends, patient-driven groupings model, we wanna make sure that we are really focusing on these DRGs because that is the uh, one of the primary focuses of, or one of the primary contributors to our reimbursement. So we want to make sure that everything is aligning as it should be. So let's start with the neuro group. Of course, the stroke would be one of the most common, but if we also see a lot of Parkinson's and maybe MS, uh, maybe some traumatic brain injury and other neurological deficits. Don't forget about Alzheimer's. That's also a neurological condition. But when we uh, think about some of the joint issues when it comes to our, our neuro patients, particularly stroke or TBI or spinal cord injury, we want to think about joint approximation and anatomical alignment. That's going to be really important to manage pain and to facilitate function. And we want to think about early bridging and PNF patterns and weight bearing, maybe prone or quadruped positioning with these patients. These are great patients to think about co-treatment with. Um, often an extra set of hands can be highly beneficial with a very complex and involved uh, CVA or other type of neuro deficit. We want to think about hemi techniques. And so remember in the beginning I mentioned ADL is also seen as a custodial type of, of activity, and it really is not. Think about with these neural patients. We need to teach ADL training with hemi techniques. That is a, a very specific treatment intervention style that requires skill. And so we want to document that. We want to make, make sure that our documentation reflects those, uh, those specific skills needed to teach those hemi techniques. And then um, thinking about any orthotic equipment that the patient may need, uh, maybe a give more sling for the upper extremity, maybe a lima strap for the lower extremity, or maybe an anti-subluxation sling, um, some kinesi kinesio taping, uh, or maybe some sort of orthotic to correct foot drop. These are types of things we want to think about address during treatment, and definitely address in our documentation. And then, of course, we're going to move on to some of the more functional ADL tasks. Those are all pre-functional things. Before we move on to the functional task, which would be uh, learning to shift the weight and then moving on to gait and some of those mobility-related ADL tasks. With our orthopedic patients, uh, we have two categories there, our surgical and our non-surgical patients, but a lot of the same concepts of apply. Of course, if the patient is post-surgical, 
there's going to be some post-surgical protocols we have to think about. Maybe weight-bearing restrictions or some precautions in movement and activity. We want to think about adaptive equipment needed. And then we want to move on to strengthening. And notice, we don't start out with strengthening because typically, post-surgically, a physician, a surgeon would not want the patient doing resistive exercise. So really be careful with that. A lot of times we think that um, it's just kind of automatic that a lot of therapists think they have to hand the patient a weight and start working on resistive strengthening immediately when that patient comes to us. Um, But that's just not the case. Um, Post-surgically, we are not working on resistive strengthening. Yes, we're working on movement. Yes, we're working on function, but not strength training. And so we want to save that for uh, when those restrictions are lifted. And that's typically going to be several weeks down the line. Um, I'll give you an example of a back patient. Let's say, for example, the patient has had surgery on the cervical or thoracic area of the spine. Typically, any resistive strength training involving the upper extremities is going to be contraindicated. If the patient had um, surgical procedure on the lumbar portion of the spine, then resistive strength training of the lower extremity is going to be contraindicated. Uh, That doesn't mean don't walk. (laughs) Yes, they want them up and walking, but we don't want the resistive exercise where we're using some weights, um, some sort of added resistance. For our non-surgical patient, you know, osteoarthritis is going to be our biggest category here. And of course, chronic pain is going to be key, uh, chronic pain control, and then range of motion limitations. Now we do want to incorporate some exercise prescription on these um, on these patients because contrary to what your patients believe, <laughs> if it hurts, we want to move more, not less. And this is something that you'll need to instill in them. Try to establish that rapport and trust so that they understand that by moving more, they're going to hurt less. And I try to use the word movement instead of exercise. What adaptive equipment does the patient need to be able to be functional or to compensate for any limitations in range of motion? And then, of course, we want to implement some sort of functional maintenance program when therapy ends. These patients are often very sedentary because they do have chronic pain, so we want to keep them moving. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the five E's of discharge planning. Now our pulmonary patients, these patients are going to be um, often we'll see a diagnosis accompanying these patients and that is anxiety because they can't breathe. And so this patient is often thinking about the limitations they have with breathing and it's important to establish rapport with these patients early on. What is um What's important is helping these patients to understand that we are not here to take their last breath away, um, what little bit they have remaining. We want to establish that rapport and explain to them that our role is not to get them working out in the gym uh, several days a week, but our goal is to get them to learn work simplification and energy conservation techniques. 
Tell the patient, hey, did you know that I can work with you and show you how to conserve your energy um, during activities of daily living so that you're not depleted of energy, so that you're not exhausted and fatigued all the time? This is how we're going to really establish that rapport and that trust. And then we want to get them to rate their perceived exertion. Have them rate it on a scale of 0 to 10 and making sure that that magic number stays below a six. Once we get to that six or higher, now it's time to take a break. Um, so you can look at the Borg scale or the modified Borg scale of perceived exertion. Those are a couple of good tools. And there's so many other great tools for, for that pulmonary patient to assess that objective and the subjective um, rating of the patient's exertion or fatigue level. And then now that we've got this rapport and this trust established, now we can maybe work in some exercise. But again, I prefer to use the term movement. And then we want to also focus on health management with this patient population as well. Managing that chronic condition, managing the salt intake, making sure that if they are ordered to weigh themselves daily uh, to check for that fluid buildup, that they're, they're compliant in doing that or that they at least understand the need to do that. And then our cardiac group. This is another common group that we see as therapists. And they often have precautions, especially if they're post-surgical. They, they will not be able to use their hands to push, pull, um, or lift. And that's going to often mean some, some compensatory techniques are going to be needed. Some patient and caregiver training is going to be needed. We want to make sure that all of the post-surgical care and instructions are adhered to. Often, if the patient had a cardiac surgery, they're ordered to have showers daily. And this is something that a lot of your patients may not have been doing before surgery. So, of course, that's, that's not going to be an easy task to accomplish after surgery. So those are things we want to be focusing on as therapists, but not the resistive exercise. Again, that's going to be contraindicated post-surgically. And then we want to focus on health management with these patients as well, um, because they now have a chronic heart condition or cardiac condition that they need to manage. And last but not least, dementia. This is one of my favorite groups to work with. Um, I feel like I'm in my happy place when I work with patients that have dementia. The first thing we want to think about when we are trying to come up with appropriate treatment interventions for this group is what stage of dementia are we working with? There are some great tools for staging dementia. A lot of people are familiar with the Allen Cognitive Levels. Um, the Global Deterioration Scale, I think, is a great resource, as well as the Tipa Snow, uh, the gems that she uses to stage uh, dementia. And there's um, probably lots of other options as well, but those are three that come to mind that are very popular and widely used. Um, so we want to identify the stage, and then I think it's important to focus on a can-do type of treatment as opposed to focusing on what they can't do. There's so much more that's left. There's so much more that they can do, and so that's where we want to shift our focus. 
One of the methods for doing this is a technique called spaced retrieval. This is where we, we, we maximize on those, rem those remaining skills to access the weaker areas of function. Um, we have two different primary types of memory. Declarative, which is more of those explicit memories or memories of different facts and historical events, um, personal events. Um, well, the factual type of memory is semantic, and then the personal events would be more episodic memory. But all of this is declarative memory. And this is the type of memory that is typically going to be the most deficient when we're dealing with uh, patients who have dementia. But the non-declarative memory, the more procedural memory, those memories are more intact. This non-declarative type of memory is what is utilized to carry out some of those commonly every uh, commonly learned everyday tasks and that those things that we can just do without even thinking like how to ride a bike or how to uh, brush our teeth or how to tie our shoes those are just some examples of non-declarative procedural type of memory and so the procedural memory is going to be our focal point when we're working on spaced retrieval. And so I'll kind of explain what that is. Spaced retrieval is an evidence-based memory technique that uses that procedural memory to recall information over longer inter intervals of time. If you use these techniques and, and really any techniques to help your patients remember or learn or understand things, it's going to really help decrease anxiety with this patient and improve those patient and caregiver interactions that are going to be so impactful to their quality of life. With spaced retrieval, you're going to ask the patient a question and provide the patient with the answer and have the patient repeat the answer. And then you'll wait 15 seconds and ask the question again and see if they can come up with that answer. If the patient cannot, then they may not be a good candidate for spaced retrieval. But if they can remember after 15 seconds and, and give it one or two tries, sometimes your patient has white lab coat syndrome, especially if they, if they can feel or, or if they perceive what's happening to be a test of some sort. So definitely try it again. But after a couple, two or three tries, if they still are not able to remember what you told them after 15 seconds, then move on to a different technique. This might not be ideal for this patient. But if they do get it right, then we're going to double the amount of time between asking that question again. So we would go from 15 seconds to 30 seconds, followed by one minute, then two minutes, then four minutes, then eight, and then 16 minutes. And the literature shows overwhelmingly that after a patient can recall something 16 minutes later, that it should now be moved over into their long-term memory. Um, so lots of success with spaced retrieval. I definitely encourage you to add this to your repertoire. And I'll give you, um, give you maybe an example of, of a specific task. Um, one example might be, you ask the question uh, to your patient, so what, um, how do you know what you're going to be doing today? 
And the response would be, I check my calendar or my planner. So you provide the question, you give the patient the answer, and then you ask them again. So um, you check your planner to know what you're going to be doing today. How do you know what you're going to be doing today? And the patient should respond, I'll check my planner. Very good. That's exactly right. Then you'll wait 15 seconds and ask that question again. How do you know what you're going to be doing today? Another example might be, um, how do you stand from a wheelchair? I lock my brakes and then I push up. So you would provide the patient with the answer. To stand from a wheelchair, you're going to lock your brakes and then press and then push up. Now, how do you stand from a wheelchair? And allow the patient to repeat that. Wait 15 seconds and ask again. Another example that speech therapy might use, um, when you are going to swallow your food, you, you need to tuck your chin. What do you need to do to swallow your food? I need to tuck my chin. That's exactly right. Very good. You need to tuck your chin to swallow your food. What do you need to do to swallow your food? I need to tuck my chin. So you can see how this repetition and this um, also uh, the approval, you know, co complimenting, commending the patient for getting it right also helps with spaced retrieval. Another good memory technique is called errorless learning. Um, this also maximizes on those procedural memories. This is kind of a feed-forward type of instructions. You're going to provide the patient with cues to ensure that no error is made. And so in addition to repeating what, you're going, what the patient will do, um, they're going to do it. So we're actually performing the task. And you're going to make sure that they perform it without making any errors. So if they go, if they start to make an error, we're going to gently correct them and then have them do it again. And the goal of errorless learning is to try to ensure that no or none of the incorrect methods or techniques are, are ingrained in that long-term memory. Studies are not as conclusive with errorless learning. There are definitely a lot more evidence-based studies that show uh, success with, um, with spaced retrieval, but errorless learning can, can uh, be a very effective way to implement learning in certain patients. So you definitely want to try multiple methods for uh, incorporating that learning. Um, an example for errorless learning might be uh, brushing your teeth. You might say to the patient, okay, I want you to open your mouth, brush your teeth, and then put your teeth together and brush, and then stick out your tongue and brush, and then have them perform that and make sure they don't make a mistake, and just continue uh, with that method until it goes into that long-term memory. And again, 16 minutes is kind of the sweet spot there. Another good memory technique is a three-word memorization technique. And this is something that I witnessed firsthand myself with a speech therapist. She taught a patient who um, had pretty advanced dementia. Um, he was so advanced that when his wife would come to visit and she would leave 
20 minutes later, he was, he was saying, I haven't seen my wife all day. Where is she? And he would become very agitated. Well, he learned how to use a walker uh, with a three-word memorization technique. The speech therapist said to him, I want you to stand, hold, and walk. Stand, hold, and walk. And she would keep repeating that to him. And um, she had all of the members of the care team repeating that to him. And eventually that went into his long-term memory. Stand, hold, and walk. And that was very effective for teaching him to use a walker. And then, of course, with dementia, we're going to make sure that we incorporate lots of caregiver education. And now on to topic number four, the fabulous five treatment techniques that demonstrate skill and add value. We're going to go over five treatment techniques here in the next five minutes or so, and then we'll wrap up with discharge planning. The first technique that really will add value and skill to your treatment is an activity analysis. This procedure uses um, typical demands of an activity and the range of skills that are involved uh, for, the, for the activity, as well as incorporating any cultural values that the patient would ascribe to that activity. And when you're basically um, observing the patient using your skilled observation to uh, carry out a task and then from that you would uh, have a discussion with the patient and have a um, provide feedback to them about what deficits might have been identified during the completion of that activity and then you would incorporate or put together some sort of plan or some treatment interventions that would address those deficits so that the patient could perform that activity with a greater level of safety or independence or success going forward. Um, a, another fabulous treatment intervention that you can incorporate is a task analysis. This encompasses identifying a skill um, and breaking that skill into its its basic components and teaching the skill one, one component at a time. There are four types of task analysis. One would be a procedural analysis for procedural skills. Then there's a hierarchical or prerequisite analysis. This is more for intellectual skills. And then we have information processing analysis, which is for a cognitive task. And then a cluster analysis, which is for verbal information skills. So a task analysis is a really great way to break up an, an activity into its basic uh, components and then addressing those one task at a time. It's also a great way to show progress in a patient that may otherwise not be making really significant functional gains. Next is task segmentation. This is breaking an activity down into one-step segments. And then we would typically use some short phrase or verbal cues or visual or tactile cues to, um, to facilitate this task segmentation. A good example of task segmentation might be with, uh, with dressing. Uh, upper body dressing. We might don our uh, undergarment and then our shirt and then a sweater or a jacket. 
Another great technique to demonstrate skill in ADL training would be chaining. Forward chaining is one method of chaining. This is teaching a skill beginning with the, with the first step and then chaining forward until you have taught the entire skill or until the patient has learned the entire skill. Forward chaining uh, in used in upper body dressing might be starting with the first step, which is donning one sleeve. And then the next step would be maybe that internal rotation needed to bring that garment around to the other side. And then the third step is, is donning the second arm into the sleeve. And then finishing that, that chaining up by buttoning, zipping, or, or fastening the garment as, as applicable. Um, we would do, we would incorporate forward chaining when a patient is expected to have better success at the beginning of the chain. Otherwise, we might, we might incorporate backward chaining. This is teaching a skill starting with the last, uh, the last component of the task and then chaining backward until the entire skill is learned. So maybe the patient has really good fine motor skills and they're able to button or zip the garment, but maybe they really lack the internal rotation needed to bring that sweater or jacket around to the other side. And so maybe we would start with where we know they're going to have the most success um, just to help with that just right challenge, inspire and motivate the patient when they see some success happening, and then we might chain backwards until we have taught that entire, uh, that entire sequence. And last of our fabulous five treatment techniques that demonstrate skill and add value would be interventions to support occupation. This used to be known in the world of OT as preparatory methods. And therapists must use preparatory methods often to, to get to a functional outcome. So this would include any activity that is not occupation-based. It might be an, an adjunctive type of technique or an enabling or purposeful technique. Um, examples of this might include exercise, orthotics, physical agent modalities, or home modifications, just to name a few. I think it's important to identify that you're working on interventions to support occupation. Again, it demonstrates skill and it really demonstrates the value that we bring to promoting safety, function, and independence. And that brings us to the final topic of the Fabulous Five of ADL training, and that is the five fabulous E's of discharge planning. Let's start with the first E, that's economics. We want to think about the level of care needed for the patient and the options that they have at their disposal for accessing or securing that level of care. It's really easy to tell a patient that they need 24-7 care. We hear that all the time. We say that all the time, right? You need 24-7 care. Well, guess what? That care is not free and no insurance. Uh, well, I never want to say no. We, we never want to say all or no, but there are typically uh, no options for most of your patients for securing 24-7 care that won't require significant out-of-pocket 
costs um, or expenses that they may or may not be able to afford. So we want to be mindful and considerate and empathetic to that with our patients. And we don't want to just tell them what they need and not give them any resources for securing what they need. It's really important to collaborate with social workers, to attend workshops or training um, where people are providing resources. And, and that might involve doing a lot, doing a little or, or a lot of research on your own. I'm kind of a nerd. I want to know a little bit about everything. And I tend to do a lot of research so that I can find resources for my patient. And I wish I could just create some sort of manual with lots of resources. But the challenge with that is, depending on where you live, those resources might be different. And so you really want to do that research in your own state, your own city, your own county or jurisdiction, and find out what resources are available for your patients and try to start compiling a list. You don't have to have to do it all at once, but as you see or hear things, um, just make a note of that and just start compiling a list. And this can be really helpful for our patients who they depend on us to help them to be successful after therapy ends. And we don't want to just say, well, you need this and then we're done. Drop the mic. <laughs> we want to want to help them to, to secure what they need. Now, many of our patients are, are going to be non-compliant, even if they can afford it. Um, they may not want to use their life savings or investment to pay for certain things that would help uh, with their function or their safety. And that's okay. We have to respect and understand that. Um, we may not understand it, but we have to respect it. But as long as we have done our due diligence with providing the patient with uh, with options and resources, then we should all feel like we can sleep at night and that was a job well done with that patient. Um, I try to avoid saying to my patient, you can't go home alone. Many times that's what they're going to do because they often don't have another option or they don't have another option that is viable for them. Next is education. We, we have to educate our patient on the specific health management needs. I've already mentioned that this is a great advancement for occupational therapy. Um, this has already been incorporated into the PT Practice Act, uh, but it's been added to occupational therapy and speech therapy is really focusing on this as well, and that is health management. We want to make sure that they have handouts, uh, visual, auditory, and tactile information. They need to, uh, we all have different ways that we remember and learn things. So we want to provide them with any and all that are applicable. So they can see it, they can hear it, they can touch it. Um, information that we can place in their hand that tells them and shows them um, what they need to do to manage their condition or their care needs after therapy ends. And environment. Oh, and I'm sorry, back to education. This involves engaging family, friends, caregivers, neighbors, whomever is involved in that patient's care and bringing them in for a session so that we can do some hands-on training. And that might be something that we have to schedule. So we want to really think about that and plan and plan ahead uh, to schedule these things to make sure that it's done. 
The next fabulous E of discharge planning is environment. We want to be realistic about the treatment goals, the interventions, and the discharge recommendations. And so these things kind of all tie in. So if we know economically this is uh, that uh, installing a ramp is going to be a challenge for the patient, then we want to help with some realistic alternatives if they cannot manage stair climbing. You know, um, maybe they can uh, lay a piece of... Um, a piece of two by four or something down and as long as a caregiver is with them and they don't have to negotiate that ramp independently that might be a suitable option and a safe option if we can train those caregivers accordingly. Of course we want to recommend what we think the patient needs um, but also try to give them some alternatives if economics are going to be a barrier for them achieving what they need. Um, when we think about treatment, I often see with ADL training, we, we finish with therapy and we decide that the patient um, is going to have to discharge at wheelchair level. Well, a lot of times if the patient was in an uh, inpatient subacute setting, well, they've mastered that toileting. We line that chair up to the commode. We angle it just right. They pull up using that grab bar. They pivot. We have enough turning radius in the bathroom. Well, and we have all these things for successful toileting. Well, what does that translate to at home? Often that translates to dependence with toileting because the first, the first barrier is that the wheelchair won't even fit in the bathroom. So these are things we want to think about when we're making recommendations, when we are treating the patient in settings other than the, the permanent setting. We want to think about the environment and also the equipment, which is our next E. What environment are they discharging to and what equipment do they have, do they or will they have access to when they go home? We want the least restrictive, the most cost-effective uh, equipment needed to complete the task as safely as possible. And if you can give them something, hey, that's great. Oftentimes, patients donate things, family members donate things. We can go on to Facebook Marketplace or all these different um, online platforms uh, let go. I mean, there's so many now. And we can obtain things at no cost and give those to our patients. Sometimes we have to get a little bit creative too and make and come up with a makeshift item <laughs> for, for an equipment need. And then last but not least is empowerment. Uh, we want to incorporate health and body management strategies. Not necessarily exercise, right? Your patients don't, um, your, some of your patients don't love exercise. But if you tell them, hey, if you do these three or four things each day, you're going to have better balance. You're going to feel better. You're going to have less pain. And you're going to be able to perform some of the things you want to do more independently for a longer period of time. And the patient might say, well, how long do I have to do that? Not long, just as long as you want to maintain your safety and your independence. And that's what I say to my patients, and, and then they laugh, of course. Um, there are lots of, of options out there for equipment, uh, I'm sorry, for empowerment for your patients, not exercise, but empowerment. 
we want to empower them to take advantage and take control of their life and their health. And if you say that to your patient, hey, I want to empower you because this is your life. Um, I heard a therapist say the other day, you don't want to do my therapy. And I'm thinking to myself, it's not your therapy. It's the patient's therapy. Um, everything we do is for them. And so we want to keep that in mind. Um, HEP to go is a great resource for exercise or home exercise programs. And there are other platforms out there as well. Um, I encourage you to look at those and come up with three to four, no more than five body management strategies that your patient can do at discharge to maintain their strength, their balance, their activities of daily living, and try to preserve those things for as long as possible. I thank you so much for joining me for the fabulous five of ADL training in older adults. I hope that you've uh, acquired several nuggets that will help you in your profession and in the advocacy that you have for your patient's health, well-being, and quality of life. Again, I'm Melinda Butler. If you have any questions for me, feel free to email me at info at therapystrategiesplus.com. And I thank you again for your time and attention. Take care. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.